0: Good morning slash evening. Welcome to the Calories and Rice podcast, a perfectly passable China-Africa podcast. I'm your host, Windsor Robertson, and I'm sadly I will not be joined by Dr. Nkemjika Kalu today as she is participating in a wedding. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, African Development Jobs. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nino Arduro, seeks to connect development workers, professional development resources, and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. Today's pod is a continuation of our discussion with Professor Howard French over his new phenomenal China-Africa book, China's Second Continent, How a Million Migrants Are Building a New Empire in Africa. We are going to dive right in and continue our conversation from the previous podcast. If you would like a more substantive introduction for Professor French or a discussion of the book, Please listen to part one of his series, and with that, here we go Nkrumah was 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 a huge fan of of china i mean mao mao era china and and actually we this pod we had a discussion based on Nkrumah 's version of neo imperialism on on the china Africa relationship i would i, I want to push back a little bit uh, on some of the stuff that you said because um I I do, have I have seen a lot of instances of of African governments picking and choosing different aspects of the China-Africa relationship to suit their own ends. And, and to to give an example, after uh, after uh, China's engagement with Angola and and the resource for infrastructure deals there, a lot of African governments actually approached the Chinese government and, and asked, in effect, "What you did in Angola, can you do that here?" Uh, and and there are a lot of instances when an African government, they'll ask for a project, and they'll give the specification they're looking for, which actually, generally, when whenever there's particularly bad Chinese construction, which can be chalked up to, to the Chinese on, on occasion, but sometimes it's because the African government doesn't have the sort of capacity, they don't have road engineers to know that the road they're asking for is going to last for five years. There there's a lot of leeway. There's a lot of give and take, in terms of African governments dealing with the Chinese and asking for things and approaching the Chinese government and 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 negotiating. That that I think might. It's not quite, I I think as as direct a, um, a Chinese led as as you state. stated, but that, well, that so a, a,
1: f- a few things, Winslow. So you know. When the when the West was highly interested in Africa and at the height of Western neo imperial neo colonialism, there were plenty of Western I'm sorry of African governments that were very eager to do business with the West and that went to Paris and to London. They would convene in Paris. Forty African presidents would go sit you know at the table with Francois Mitterrand or something like that. And people like Houphouet Boigny would go and petition the French to build this or to do that. That doesn't mean that it's not neo, neo-colonialism. Good point. It doesn't, it's, not, it's not because, you know, an African government asked the Chinese to do something that it's not neo-colonial, neo- neo-colonialism. That's irrelevant. It's, it's, it's about the power relationship and about the availability of alternatives. Um, and, you know, I think I've made my point in those regards. People are free to disagree with me if they, if they don't buy my argument, but that's my argument. Um, I have had, in, and people who read my book will see, that I have had many people in many African governments, officials who have themselves negotiated with the Chinese, tell, describe processes to me whereby uh, the Chinese come with uh, pretty much pre-drawn up plans for something, and, and also very often pre-selected companies to do these works, um, and that the Africans and I don't wish to pretend that every single African country has had the exact experience of this with China as, as, as every other. That's clearly not the case. But I've heard enough examples of, of, of senior officials and ex-officials in African countries describe something like I've just told you, mm-hmm. where you know, the, plant, the blueprints you know, pretty much pre-cooked up in China, and the, the companies that China has offered to do the work. Were pre-selected. In other words, you don't have to choose necessarily, you know, road and bridge. We'll give you a short list with three or five companies. You take your pick, whichever one you want from among them. That is not exactly a free choice, Hmm. Um, and and so this these things feed into the pattern that I'm describing.
0: I I think you you are quite persuasive in that in that regard. I'm gonna put forth a conceptual criticism, but. I want to preface it by saying I love your book, and every one of our listeners, all 20 of you, should immediately buy it. It's, it is uh, an amazing book that, that uh, definitely anybody interested in China after has to read. You, Professor French, refer to the Chinese in Africa as migrants, and a lot of your interviewees are people who have indeed moved to their respective African country to, to stay for the long haul. However, much of the research I'm familiar with shows that many of the Chinese in Africa are more expatriates instead of migrants, people who are looking to make quick money or finish a contract and return to China. Is there a difference between a Chinese immigrant and a Chinese expat? Um, So
1: I do use the term migrant. It's obviously part of the title of my book. Uh, and for me, if you go set up a country, a company in a foreign country, uh, you uproot yourself from where you lived, and you take all of your savings. And I saw pa- example after example after example of this in my reporting. And you go set up a company for yourself, or a business for yourself, or a farm for yourself in a foreign country. You are a migrant. Period. Whether you stay, end up having a great ex- experience and it makes you wish to stay forever, or you end up staying for 20 years, or you end up staying for 10 years, or if you end up staying for one year because you failed and, or you decided you hated it or whatever. In each of those instances, in my view, you are a migrant. You took every bit of human and financial capital you had available to you and rolled the dice and took your chances on making a life for yourself in a foreign country. That for me is a, a pretty good definition of migration.
0: I, I completely agree, but what about um, Chinese contractors who, who are in for a, a, a two-year contract to, to build a, a, a stadium?
1: They don't, rep, they don't figure in my book. The only people like that who figure in my book are the people who arrived under those circumstances and decided they wished to stay. And they talk about, in my book, how they decided to stay. So if they decided to stay, what are they except for migrants? Um, In terms of the word expat, I mean, it's a word that didn't even occur to me. An expat for me has a kind of a, a very particular connotation that has to do with, in my own sense of it. uh, You know, uh, work for a company where you're sent overseas for a very sharply, clearly delimited period of time. Uh, and those are not the people that I'm dealing with in my book, and I don't think that people like that represent a very big piece of the number that's described in the title of my book.
0: So out of the, the million migrants, the, myth, the mythical million I like to call it because it's essentially an improvable number and we have no idea, although it, it, could, it, it could very well be more, how much of that million, if, if you want to hazard a guess, are migrants? or people who are, are expatriates, as I just posited?
1: Um, I'm not going to get into a numbers game with you, because I think the empirical work on this topic is, 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 is non- non-existent. Non-ex- <laughs> um, uh, I only have my own anecdotal sense of it, and I use the word anecdotal advisedly. I'm not embarrassed about anecdote, uh, but that's all I've got. And, uh, My sense, my own sense, as I've said, I think in the epilogue, is that there's probably many more than a million Chinese people in Africa. My own sort of back of the envelope guess, and I emphasize again, guess, would be closer to two million than to one million. Um, uh, I don't think that expats, as I have defined them, is... uh, the biggest piece of that I think migrants and I, I I can repeat how I define migrant for you a migrant is somebody who rolls the dice and tries to make a life in a foreign country under their own auspices
0: okay I will state that the Chinese government is not fond of Chinese actors in Africa outside of their control and so basically, every Chinese ambassador will privately complain about law-breaking Chinese individuals. Uh, it's it's the easiest way to elicit a sigh from them. If the Chinese government itself is ambivalent about Chinese migration to Africa, what does that mean for your thesis in terms of a, an imperial project? Doesn't
1: mean anything. Um, you know, so, if, you
0: know, you said it's
1: the easiest way to elicit a sigh from a Chinese ambassador. It's also the easiest way to excuse oneself for responsibility for anything. Oh, we don't like this. We're, of course, we're as upset about this as you are. Those terrible Chinese who are running around breaking the laws, of course, we don't approve of that. Um, you know, you have to be a little more sophisticated than that. You, you, I don't take my own government or any other government's rhetoric at face value. Um, You know, what a Chinese ambassador or for that matter an American ambassador says about, you know, the behavior of his or her people isn't uh, typically a very important gauge of reality for me. Um, I've already told you that I did not believe that, you know, the people in the Politburo or the Central Committee had a meeting where they sat around the table and said, how do we get a million Chinese people in Africa? Um, I do not believe that there was ever a discussion at at anything like that level in China. That doesn't mean that the presence of a million or two million or eventually five or twenty million Chinese people in Africa does not service the interests at a number of levels of the Chinese nation, even if the people who in, at, in, in their individual lives don't think of themselves that way. They are creating networks of trade and human relations and finance uh, and Soft power and all sorts of other things that flow that have the potential of flowing very powerfully back to China in ways that reinforce China's position in Africa and in the world. So the fact that a Chinese ambassador says, "Look, we don't have, we don't approve of this, or we don't approve of them, or we have nothing to do with this, or this isn't us," that that's irrelevant to me.
0: Fair enough. Last question: Could you talk about Access. What was it like as a foreigner to talk to so many Chinese people about the China-African relationship? Were you accused of being a spy at all, which is a fairly common accusation for researchers in this field?
1: Listen, you know, I I first wrote about this topic from Shanghai when I was the Times Bureau chief there. And um, so, you know, I've been following it pretty carefully ever since then. And I became aware very early of a, of a common line uh in a lot of western reporting either an explicit line that was written in the way that I'm going to describe or 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 something that you could read between the lines that wasn't said explicitly that that is a bit like if I may be permitted to be a, a, try to be funny like the the line of the chinese ambassador that you just mentioned you know the sigh but and the line in the western journalism says something to the effect that Oh, because of communications problems, we couldn't get any Chinese people to talk to us about their lives or about their presence or about China or about any of this. Therefore, they go on and they editorialize about whatever it is that they thought or, you know, it may even have preconceived of before they arrived on the scene. I was determined I wasn't going to do that. I was going to talk to Chinese people. I wasn't going to, you know, we've talked about ambassadors and I did do, do speak in the course of my work to a few ambassadors here and there. But I didn't want to, I, you know, I didn't want this to be a book about what officials say. I wanted it to be a book about what people say, real people. Um, and that, for me as a journalist, is the most valuable kind of material. Uh, that is the basic matrix without which, for me, uh, in narrative long fiction, you don't really have anything. Um, and so, you know, I honed my. Uh, ability to to pursue uh, prolonged interviews with ordinary people to really get underneath their skin and to sort of see them in their most uh, natural native environment in, in Africa uh, before I even began this book with a book of my book of photography in Shanghai disappearing Shanghai, where I essentially um, you know I spent an entire summer knock, knocking on the doors of strangers in poor and working class neighborhoods of central Shanghai. And, and kind of bidding myself into the houses and getting people to accept my presence and to let me, obviously not a Chinese person, right, take pictures of them while they go about their lives in the most natural possible way. Um, you know, if you want to have something genuine, you can't accept the excuse that people want to, won't talk to you. You can't accept the excuse that people will only talk to you in a highly prescripted kind of formal way. You have to find a way to get past that and so, you know, that's what this book was about for me. Um, not a whole lot of people said anything about you being a spy to me, being a spy to me. Uh, they, if they thought that, they kept it to themselves. Uh, I had very few people uh, behave uh, in uh, a rude or uh, off-putting way. Um, uh, you know, the head of the Chinese Association of Chinese Residents in Senegal uh, refused to see me. I'm just fighting from memory. Um, uh, as Something like that happened with another Chinese person in, in uh, you know, like a supposed community leader in in Lusaka. Um, but by and large, I didn't have that kind of experience. You know, I would call people up. I would speak to them in Chinese. Uh, I would write them in emails. They see my names in Chinese. I didn't pretend to be Chinese, but they so wow. Here's a guy. You know, he's got a, he's speaking Chinese. He's got a Chinese name. He sounds, you know pretty good in the language, he's you know, okay, let's see. And next thing you know, you're drinking tea with them or you're eating a meal with them or you're in a car with them driving to their place or you're you know, spending time on their farm or what have you. It's not as, I mean, I don't mean to say that every journalist is gonna necessarily have, you know, X number of years of Chinese language beforehand as I did, but, but, but it's not as hard as people have made it, made it out to be. You know, Chinese people are people and people are willing to talk about stuff if you have the patience and persistence and technique that's needed to kind of do your journalism.
0: That's a a really fantastic point. Can I ask the the actual final, final question? You featured voices from almost every walk of life. Why did you talk to so many different people? And was this something that you planned from the outset? Your book is one of the few China Africa books that does this and, and what really adds to its quality?
1: Well, you know, as I said, I, I've, I, I had begun to lose patience with a certain kind of writing about this topic, which in which it's kind of um, a kind of navel gazing, a kind of parlor game. I described it earlier on, who's winning or who's losing, China or the West, you know, is China good or bad for Africa? And most of the people who are entertaining these kinds of questions are doing so in a closed box. You know, they're not really talking to a lot of people. And when they're talking to people, they tend not to be talking to real people. What are real people? Real people are people who don't represent companies, don't represent governments. They're speaking in their individual capacity about their own real lives. And I wanted to have real people animate my book. Africans, and Chinese, both of whom I think have been highly missing from most of this discussion. And I want to be careful. I'm not saying that nobody ever talked to any real people. But in general, I find that this discussion, the China-Africa discussion, has been has been weak on real people, what I've described as real people. And so I said, I'm going to go find real people, and I'm going to find as many real people as I can. And. How many people I talked to in the end it was largely func- a function of my budget. My budget means means two, two things: how much money I could afford to spend lingering in, in place after place, and how much time I could afford to spend off academic calendar reporting my book. Um, you know uh, so you know again I, 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 the material that I collected ultimately I, was enough to have written easily another couple of books of this length, but but, you know, the essential points that I thought needed to be made were made, and I chose my characters and countries um, with an eye to variety and to, to having some kind of balance between different walks of life, different stations of life, different places geographically, etc. Um, and, uh, you know, um, that, that's, this, this, is, <laughs> this is the result that I've come up with.
0: I well, you you should be proud. You you did a damn fine job. I was I I, I loved it. it. It was like reading you know, Shadow of the Sun, only a China Africa version. Let's move on to to recommendations, Professor French. Do you have anything to recommend to our listeners?
1: So uh, I was in West Africa just um, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, very happily, went my time in Ghana um, first and then in in Nigeria, in Accra and Lagos, respectively. Um, And I kind of cut my teeth as a journalist. Uh, Next year will make 40 years I've been working in Africa, incredibly. Um, And um, West Africa is where I started. Um, And it it continues. I mean, I'm not a chauvinist about West Africa, but it has... Special resonances for me, still uh, many different places in West Africa do. Um, And I was just really uh, tickled to read uh, Teju Cole's Every Day is for the Thief uh, (laughs) as I was leaving Accra for for Lagos. It's a a brief, very absorbing, very personal uh, book. Um, And I sort of had a long uh, time in the Accra airport and then a short flight to Lagos, and I finished most of it in that span, and then that first night or two, in Lagos finished the rest of the book and 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 found it uh, just just really wonderful i mean it's a, again a very highly individualized perspective on things based on a, on a very special individual's experience of 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 return so Teju is is a Nigerian who then has lived outside of his country and come back to visit and so it has that very special perspective, but I, I really enjoyed that.
0: Oh, I would like to second that recommendation. We actually did make that very recommendation on this pod a few, a few months ago. I, I love that book. I thought it was just fantastic. But thank you so much for, for sharing that story. And, and it is a good kind of read on the plane. It's actually a perfect book to read on the plane to Lagos. Mm-hmm. Um, sure.
1: Because he's, he's describing a little bit arriving in Lagos as well.
0: Fantastic. All right, before we sign off, Professor French, how do people find you on the interwebs? Do you have a website or a Twitter account that you'd like to share with us?
1: Sure. My website where I put most of my current writing um, uh, is howardwfrench.com. And my Twitter uh, name is hofrench, no spaces. Um, And uh, that's it.
0: And all our all our listeners should definitely check out his website. He he created one page that has all these uh, links to the different interviews and and discussions and excerpts from the from the book. So I I really recommend checking that out as well. As for myself, I can be found at cowriesrice.blogspot.com and my Twitter handle is at Winslow underscore R. I've been tweeting a lot of uh, China Africa stuff and a lot of. World Cup stuff, especially related to African soccer. I'm looking forward to, uh, I don't know, maybe two or three African countries to advance to the next round. That's about it for today's episode. We would like to thank Professor French from Kenya. You're, you're in Kenya now. Nairobi. 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 Mm-hmm. Fantastic. I found it tomorrow. Oh, oh, dang. Well, we'd like to thank you so very much. For joining us this evening, and as well as African Development Jobs for sponsoring us, this podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. We have applied to put it up on the BlackBerry Network, but we'll, they'll get back to us. And we hope to reach more media platforms in the future, so anyone that our listeners recommend, we will, we will try our hand at. We would also like to thank Mighty Mike at Pulse Recordings for composing the theme song, and thank you, dear listener, for giving us your time. Take care.